Hi, this is Donald Robertson. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about and recite one of the greatest speeches of antiquity. It's by the sophist Protagoras, the first of the sophists at Athens, and it's recounted in a dialogue of Plato's called the Protagoras. And so Plato portrays Protagoras uh, delivering this remarkable uh, speech um, addressing the question of whether virtue can be taught and whether the potential or capacity for it is distributed throughout all of mankind. An idea which incidentally would be integral to, in a sense presupposed by Athenian direct democracy. So the Athenians thought it was important for the people, demos, to rule the state. And that belief uh, was associated with the idea that everyone was capable of the virtue of justice and associated social virtues. So without further ado, because I think this is such an amazing speech and everyone should be familiar with it, um, it's really important to our understanding of Plato and Socrates, but I also think you can see obvious echoes of it in the Stoic writings, all the way down to Marcus Aurelius, uh, when they talk about uh, justice and our uh, the idea that man is a naturally social creature, which is integral to Stoic philosophy. So without further ado, this is the great speech or great discourse of Protagoras. There once was a time when the gods existed, but mortal races did not. When the time came for their appointed genesis, the gods moulded them inside the earth, blending together earth and fire and various compounds of earth and fire. When they were ready to bring them to light, the gods put Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus in charge of assigning to each its appropriate powers and abilities. Epimetheus begged Prometheus for the privilege of assigning the abilities himself. When I've completed the distribution, he said, you can inspect it. Prometheus agreed and Epimetheus started distributing abilities. To some, he assigned strength without quickness. The weaker ones he made quick. Some he armed, others he left unarmed, but devised for them some other means of preserving themselves. He compensated for small size by issuing wings for flight or an underground habitat. Size was itself a safeguard for those he made large. And so on down the line, balancing his distribution, making adjustments and taking precautions against the possible extinction of any of the races. After supplying them with defences against mutual destruction, he devised for them protection against the weather. He clothed them with thick pelts and tough hides capable of warding off winter storms, effective against heat and serving also 
as built-in natural bedding when they went to sleep. He also shod them, some with hoofs, other with thick pads of bloodless skin. Then he provided them with various forms of nourishment, plants for some, fruit from trees for others, roots for still others. And there were some to whom he gave the consumption of other animals as their sustenance. To some he gave the capacity for few births. To others, ravaged by the former, he gave the capacity for multiple births, and so ensured the survival of their kind. But Epimetheus was not very wise, and he absent-mindedly used up all the powers and abilities on the non-reasoning animals. He was left with the human race completely unequipped. While he was floundering about at a loss, Prometheus arrived to inspect the distribution and saw that while the other animals were well provided with everything, the human race was naked, unshod, unbedded and unarmed. And it was already the day on which all of them, human beings included, were destined to emerge from the earth into the light. It was then that Prometheus, desperate to find some means of survival for the human race, stole from Hephaestus and Athena wisdom in the practical arts, together with fire, without which this kind of wisdom is effectively useless. And he gave them outright to the human race. The wisdom it acquired was for staying alive. Wisdom for living together in society, political wisdom, it did not acquire, because that was in the keeping of Zeus. Prometheus no longer had free access to the high citadel that is the house of Zeus, and besides this, the guards there were terrifying. But he did sneak into the building that Athena and Hephaestus shared, to practice their art, and he stole from Hephaestus the art of fire, and from Athena her arts, and he gave them to the human race. And it is from this origin that the resources human beings needed to stay alive came into being. Later, the story goes, Prometheus was charged with theft, all on account of Epimetheus. It is because humans had a share of the divine dispensation that they alone, among animals, worshipped the gods, with whom they had a kind of kinship and erected altars and sacred images. It wasn't long before they were articulating speech and words and had invented houses, clothes, shoes and blankets and were nourished by food from the earth. Thus equipped, Human beings at first lived in scattered isolation. There were no cities. They were being destroyed by wild beasts because they were weaker in every way, and although their technology was adequate to obtain food, it was deficient when it came to fighting wild animals. This was because they did not yet possess the art of politics, of which the art of war is a part. They did indeed try to band together and survive by founding cities. The outcome when they did so was that they wronged each other because they did not possess the art of politics and so they would scatter again, be destroyed. 
Zeus was afraid that our whole race might be wiped out, so he sent Hermes to bring justice and a sense of shame to humans, so that there would be order within cities and bonds of friendship to unite them. Hermes asked Zeus how he should distribute shame and justice to humans. Should I distribute them as the other arts were? This is how the others were distributed. One person practising the art of medicine suffices for many ordinary people, and so forth with the other practitioners. Should I establish justice and shame among humans in this way, or distribute it to all? To all, said Zeus, and let all have a share, for cities would never come to be if only a few possessed these as is the case with the other arts, and establish this law as coming from me, death to him who cannot partake of shame and justice, for he is a pestilence to the city. And so it is, Socrates, that when the Athenians, and others as well, are debating architectural excellence, or the virtue proper to any other professional speciality, they think that only a few individuals have the right to advise them, and they do not accept advice from anyone outside these select few. You've made this point yourself, and with good reason, I might add. But when the debate involves political excellence, which must proceed entirely from justice and temperance, they accept advice from anyone, and with good reason, for they think that this particular virtue Political or civic virtue is shared by all, or there wouldn't be any cities. This must be the explanation for it, Socrates. And so you won't think you've been deceived. Consider this as further evidence for the universal belief that all humans have a share of justice and the rest of civic virtue. In the other arts, as you have said, if someone claims to be a good flute player or whatever, but is not, people laugh at him or get angry with him and his family comes round and remonstrates with him as if he were mad. But when it comes to justice or any other social virtue, even if they know someone is unjust, if that person publicly confesses the truth about himself, they will call this truthfulness madness, whereas in the previous case they would have called it a sense of decency. They will say that everyone ought to claim to be just, whether, or whether they are or not, and that it is madness not to pretend to justice, since one must have some trace of it or not be human. This, then, is my first point. It is reasonable to admit everyone as an advisor on this virtue, on the grounds that everyone has some share of it. Next, I will attempt to show that people do not regard this virtue as natural or self-generated, but as something taught and carefully developed in those in whom it is developed. In the case of evils that men universally regard as afflictions due to nature or bad luck, no one ever gets angry with anyone so afflicted or reproves, admonishes, punishes or tries to correct him. We simply pity them. No one in his right mind would try to do anything like this to someone who is ugly, for example, or scrawny, or weak. The reason is, I assume, that they know that these things happen to people as a natural process, or by chance. 
both these ills and their opposites. But in the case of the good things that accrue to men through practice and training and teaching, if someone does not possess these goods, but rather their corresponding evils, he finds himself the object of anger, punishment and reproof. Among these evils are injustice, impiety and in general everything that is opposed to civic virtue. Offences in this area are always met with anger and reproof and the reason is clearly that this virtue is regarded as something acquired through practice and teaching. The key, Socrates, to the true significance of punishment lies in the fact that human beings consider virtue to be something acquired through training. For no one punishes a wrongdoer in consideration of the simple fact that he has done wrong, unless one is exercising the mindless vindictiveness of a beast. Reasonable punishment is not vengeance for a past wrong, for one cannot undo what has been done, but is undertaken with a view to the future, to deter both the wrongdoer and whoever sees him being punished from repeating the crime. This attitude towards punishment as deterrence implies that virtue is learned, and this is the attitude of all those who seek requital in public or in private. All human beings seek requital from and punish those who they think have wronged them, and the Athenians, your fellow citizens, especially do so. Therefore, by my argument, the Athenians are among those who think that virtue is acquired and taught. So it is with good reason that your fellow citizens accept a blacksmith's or a cobbler's advice in political affairs, and they do think that virtue is acquired and taught. It appears to me that both these propositions have been sufficiently proved. Socrates. And there ends the great discourse of Protagoras, basically. There are some additional arguments that he employs. So there are a number of uh, key things in there. He thinks the capacity for justice must be universal and it's required for us to actually survive. There's a kind of strange precursor of uh, uh, evolutionary argument there about our survival uh, and the survival of other species depending on certain traits or abilities and humans being surprisingly weak and vulnerable compared to other animals. Now, our defence, not lying in claws or flight or strength, but in our ability to form communities and build cities to protect ourselves. Um, but Protagoras argues that in order to do that, we need civic virtue. Uh, or we wouldn't be able to survive. The human race would be extinct. And uh, he thinks uh, we also assume that although everyone has the capacity for it, it's also teachable that uh, it would be like saying everybody has the capacity uh, to sing to some extent or um, to play certain sports, but they might be rubbish at it unless they're given some tuition or training. So I think this is so important. I've made my own paraphrase of some of the key parts of it, uh, but it's much shorter. I'm just going to go through that briefly now as a kind of recap because like, there's a lot of stuff in there that you probably uh, missed first time round. It's a speech that you could read over and over again. So this is my kind of condensed version of the great discourse of Protagoras. At first there were gods, but no mortal creatures. 
when the time came, the gods fashioned countless animals by mixing together the elements of fire and earth. Zeus then commanded Prometheus, the titan, to assign different abilities to each living thing, or rather his brother, uh, Epimetheus. Some creatures were naturally slow, and so he gave them great strength. Others were weak, and so to these Prometheus and his brother granted speed. Some he armed, while others were given various forms of protection. Small creatures were granted the capability for winged flight or for concealing their dwellings underground. Large beasts had their size for protection, and he took care to grant all creatures some means for their own preservation so that no species should be in danger of elimination by others. Having equipped them to survive among each other in this way, he proceeded to grant them protection against their environment and the harshness of the seasons. He clothed some creatures with dense hair or thick skin, sufficient to endure the heat of summer and ward off the cold through winter months. To some he gave strong hoofs, to other claws and uh, thick hides that did not shed much blood. And every creature was assigned its own source of food. Some pastured on the earth, others ate fruit hanging from trees or roots from beneath the ground. Yet others were predators who fed upon other animals for their meat. To these he assigned limited offspring, whereas their prey were more abundant, so that there would always be enough to serve as food. However, having assigned to each species its own special capabilities, Prometheus realised that he had nothing left to give the race of man. Humans are born naked, unshod, unarmed, and with no bed in which to lay their head and rest safely. Not knowing what else to do, Prometheus stole the technical wisdom of the gods Hephaestus and Athena and gave it to mankind, along with the gift of fire. Once men were granted these divine gifts, they sensed their kinship to the gods and began to pray and build altars to them. They invented clothing, bedding, dwellings, agriculture, and even the use of language to express their thoughts and acquire learning. Men lived apart at first, but finding themselves beset continually and harassed by wild beasts, they sought to build cities for their own mutual protection. However, the wisdom that concerns our relations with others belonged to Zeus alone, king of the gods and patron of friendship and families. No sooner than men gathered together trying to save themselves, being lawless, they began instead to wrong one another and fight among themselves, and so scattering once again from their failed cities, they continued to perish in the wild. Looking down upon this chaotic scene with dismay, Zeus feared for the destruction of the entire human race. He therefore sent Hermes, the messenger of the gods, to teach mortals about justice and imbue them with a sense of shame concerning wrongdoing. By this means Zeus now granted mankind the capacity to unite themselves in cities, maintaining order through the bonds of friendship and the sense of community. Hermes asked Zeus whether he should distribute justice and other social and political arts among men in the same way as technical knowledge concerning other crafts. 
One man who possesses the knowledge of medicine, he said, was enough to benefit many men, and so on. However, Zeus decreed that every human being must be granted some knowledge of justice and the arts needed to unite society. He even laid down the law that anyone who was found unable to respect justice and the rule of law should be put to death, being a plague to the city. For this reason, said Protagoras, we seek the advice only of those few who are experts with regard to crafts such as medicine or carpentry, but concerning justice, we allow every citizen to have his say, at least in the Athenian uh, assembly. Further, if someone boasts of being an expert in playing the flute or some such art, but is nothing of the sort, then he's ridiculed for his folly. However, anyone who claims not to, partic not to participate in justice risks being expelled from society, because each and every citizen is expected to share at least somewhat in this capacity, which allows him to live harmoniously in the company of others. So there you are, uh, the great discourse of Protagoras and some really interesting ideas about the survival of animal species, uh, kind of foreshadowing uh, Darwin in some ways and uh, this idea that human survival depends um, on social virtue and a sense of community and the argument um, that everyone has this capacity by nature and that it's also teachable. It's a skill that we can learn to improve. Uh, and of course, this was important to Protagoras because he made a living by charging very high fees uh, in order to teach virtue, including justice uh, to wealthy young Athenian male citizens. Um, so that's part of the subtext of the speech, which you'll find Socrates discussing in Plato's dialogue called Protagoras.